Good morning, church. All of Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he, was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does, does not work, but believes in him, him who, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against from the, the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How, oft, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So the right, that righteousness without, would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherent of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why... It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of its offspring, not only to the adherent of, of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that it is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who, raised, who, who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the very word of God. Thank you, Matt, for reading the whole chapter. What is faith? For many, faith seems to be a concept that goes against the facts, an abstract idea that goes against what is tangible. Some might say it is believing the impossible, 
or it is wishful thinking, or it is an abstract feeling for those who do not follow logic. For others, faith is believing in our own selves. You might have heard many or all of these and and others as well. But many of these thoughts suggest that the source of faith is in ourselves and the object is immaterial. But for the believer, the source of true faith is the promise of God documented clearly in an irrefutable manuscript. And the object of our faith is a person whose existence is undeniable even by those who do not believe in him. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. In his letter to the Romans, Paul has shown commitment to proclaiming faith and truth by presenting his gospel and defending it against critics, oftentimes in a Q&A form as if he were having a debate with an imaginary opponent. He's been asking the questions and then answering them himself. He's been arguing that all have sinned, all are dead, all need justification. And that this can only be obtained through Jesus Christ, who is the only way to God, who grants righteousness through faith to all who believe apart from the law. Paul then concludes chapter 3, as we saw last week, with three main points. Because Christ is the justifier apart from the law, the humility of faith triumphs over boasting. Because Jews and Gentiles become children of God through faith, there is no discrimination or distinction. And because justification came first and the law was later given for the purpose of obedience, there is no need to oppose the law or become antinomian. At first glance, chapter 4 seems to be a long, unnecessary bracket, making us wonder why Paul is bothering with someone who died hundreds of years ago. Get us to how we uphold the law already as the end of verse of chapter 3 says. But we must remember the context of first century Judaism and the role Abraham played in it. Abraham was the forefather of the Jews, and he was rightly held in high regard. Paul is now addressing his descendants in this letter with matters regarding faith, law, justification, and gospel. Many rabbis thought of Abraham as the prototype of the man who is justified by works. But if there was a prime example of justification by faith before the coming of Jesus, the standard would be Abraham. It is only logical then that Paul would present the case for faith from none other than Abraham the patriarch. The gospel of faith is not a creation of Paul or a figment of his imagination. It had been foretold long ago many generations before the law was given. Abraham was the beginning of demonstrating how there is only one way for all people to be made righteous before God and right with God. The way of salvation has been one and the same all along for Jews and Gentiles in the Old and the New Testaments, past, present, and future. Everyone must be saved by one way and one way only, and that is through faith and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, as Acts 4.12 says. In making his argument, 
Paul repeats several key words in this chapter. Faith, works, law, righteousness, justification, counted or counting, promise, and of course circumcision. He uses these words with the example of Abraham, the forefather, and David, the prototypical king, to make the case against boasting and discrimination while championing faith based on the promise of God. So our study of this passage today will focus on the following points. Justification by faith in verses 1 through 8. Faith unites where circumcision divides in verses 9 through 12. Faith receives promise and law in verses 13 through 16. Abraham persevered in faith, verses 17 to 22. And one faith unites all believers in verses 23 to 25. And yes, I know these are five points today, but there's a long chapter also. And they might have some subpoints. So let's start by justification by faith in the first eight verses. Many Jewish rabbis and interpreters, as we said, considered Abraham to be a very righteous man, one who obeyed God and the law even before it was given, one who had done good things to earn God's favor or get his attention. They even postulated that God foresaw the works of Abraham and so gave him the promise and the faith, something that a lot of people still believe today, that God foresees who will believe in him and then gives them that gift of faith. And some even said that Abraham, in his act of believing, that act was in itself a good work of righteousness that earned him the favor of God and deserved the reward. They wanted to follow in what they believed were his footsteps, seeking to obey every letter of the law. And that made boasting pretty prevalent back then. It is also still today. Remember the Pharisee who prayed in Luke chapter 18, saying, thank God I'm not like one of them. I tithe and I give and I pray and I fast. He had all the reasons to boast in his obedience to the law, which had become his idol and his master. We must also remember that there was, in the context of the early church, that Paul is addressing much heated debates between believers from a Jewish background and those from a Gentile background, and even Jews, some of whom were believers and some were not. This led to discrimination and preferentialism, vices that continue, unfortunately, today. This is exactly why Paul makes his argument from Abraham's life. For Father Abraham had been righteous, as the rabbis believed, and he had done good deeds prior to faith, then he would have earned his righteousness. When you and I receive our paychecks at the end of the month or in the middle of it, our bosses cannot claim that they have gifted us money or been gracious to us in giving us something we do not deserve. We earned our wages. And just like any worker who receives wages or a salary, Abraham would have received the wages of his good works. This is, in fact, the economy of all religions outside of Christianity. It is a language of doing in order to receive the favor of God. And if we are honest with ourselves, oftentimes this is the language of our relationship with God, thinking we can earn his favor or even atone for sin. If only we do something right, God will show us favor. 
that we can appease him through good works. Or like Catholics and others believe that we can work hard and grow in sanctification until the point where God sees how good we are, how good we have become, and then justifies us. But this is not the case. The language of the Christian faith is a language of done. It is finished. And so it was for Abraham, whose justification preceded, came before the giving of the law. He had done nothing to earn God's favor. He and his family worshipped other gods. Joshua 24.3 says they worshipped other gods. He was not righteous. There is no one righteous. None who does good. Not even one. Not even Abraham. In fact, verse 5 in our chapter clearly states the condition of Abraham and everyone before justification. And the word is ungodly. Some translations say wicked. But God called Abraham away from his family and out of his land and gave him a promise first. He believed God who counted this faith to him as righteousness. He had done no works of righteousness. He was a sinner, but the Lord did not count his sins against him. He accounted to him or credited to him a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him, as one of the commentators said. And here Paul quotes Psalm 32 and verses 7 and 8, using the words of David, the king, who also acknowledged that God is the one who justifies and forgives sin. Sin only brings death, and the wages of sin is death. Just like we earn our wages for our work, when we sin, we are working to earn our wages for sin, and that is death. So no one can say that he or she will receive injustice from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, does not count sin against some people, his elect, and so does not give them their wages. He rather counts righteousness or credits righteousness or gives the gift of righteousness, something we do not earn, and that is received by faith. Is there then a reason to boast in any works? By no means. Paul says that Abraham had no thing to be nothing to be boasting for before God. If one was good enough to be justified by works, there is no need for faith. There's no need for grace. There's no need for a gift. What role does circumcision then play? In the next three verses, verses 9 through 12, Paul will speak of that in the life of Abraham. When Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, verse 6, there was no mention at all of circumcision. The first mention of it comes later in Genesis 17, verses 10 through 14, at which point Abraham was 99 years old. And this was 25 years after he was counted as righteous. Abraham was clearly saved first, then set apart. He was given the covenant, then he was given the outward sign, which Paul here says the circumcision was the sign of the righteousness that he received. Both were gifts. Faith was gift, 
and also the sign of righteousness was a gift to Abraham from God. Circumcision was a sign of the justification and a seal that marked those who are set apart into the community of faith. Because Abraham was justified first, he became the father of all who believe, whether circumcised or not, because he was saved before he was circumcised, which makes him the father of both Jewish and Gentile believers. The sign of being set apart does not become a seal unless the person is justified first. It is walking in the faith that matters more than being born to believing parents, being raised in church, being circumcised, being baptized at birth, or given a Christian name. If you remember, when Abraham was given the command to be circumcised, he circumcised all his household. That included his son, Ishmael. That was before Isaac was born. And Ishmael was not justified, even though he received the sign as an act of grace by being part of the community, he was not justified. And today, Islam still circumcises children as a sunnah or a command, as a sign of belonging to the community. But no one is justified outside of faith in Jesus Christ. So merely having the sign does not mean anything if one is not walking by faith, which is Paul's argument here. So whether circumcised or not, righteousness must come by faith after which those who are justified and who walk in this faith are assured that they belong to the family of faith whose father is Abraham. In our context, in the New Covenant, believers' baptism and church membership are God's gifts to believers just like faith is, and they are the sign that we belong to the people of God and the seal of our justification as we partake together of the graces that God has given us. Now, Paul had already mentioned in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, that the important circumcision was that of the heart. He again talks about the same issue in his letter to the Galatians, where some people were trying to force circumcision on others as the hallmark of the new covenant in Christ. If you are not circumcised, you are not a believer. That's not true. You are a believer first, and then you receive the sign of the righteousness. Circumcision, in fact, had no independent value. When Abraham was justified by faith and righteousness was credited to him, circumcision did not add anything material to this transaction, but only confirmed it, as one of the commentators said. We become Abraham's spiritual children by faith, not by circumcision or baptism or through the Lord's Supper or by becoming part of Israel. Circumcision back then, had become the hallmark of the Jewish community and had unfortunately separated between Jews and Gentiles, which is a lot of what Paul talks about later in this this letter, but also in Galatians. And at that time, the Jews were given the the sign for the sake of blessing the nations. Paul is here giving a contrast between how circumcision divides while faith unites people from all nations, Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, said that where circumcision divides, faith unites. The sign of Christian faith does not become the seal without walking 
in the faith. Whether circumcised or not, baptized at birth or not, doing the sign of the cross or not, that has no bearing. It is faith that unites those who walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And in faith, there is no discrimination. There's rather unity with one another through our union with Christ. Faith promotes, in fact, the uniqueness of our distinctive gifts for the glory of God. It takes away boasting, it takes away any discrimination, and reminds us of the promises of God we have in Christ. How does the promise of God relate to the law? In verses 13 through 16, we will see that faith receives both the promise and the law. The word of God teaches us that we were dead in our sins and that we were made alive in Christ. But our human ways and sinful nature always seek to perform, to do, to earn. As I said, all, made, all man-made religions are their core works-based. But these verses proclaim the grace of God to be preeminent in our election. He graciously gives the promise first and the righteousness of faith, then gives the law to guide our obedience. The law came hundreds of years after Abraham was justified. Before the law was given to Moses, it is not as, as if sin did not exist. It did. And that's why there was need for salvation. In the next chapter in verse 13, Paul says that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. What happened with the giving of the law is that it enabled people's sins to become more visible to them. Sin became more serious and consequential, a concept that has, has come to be known as transgression. Once when I lived up in the Northeast, I was hiking with a friend in, in a park in Connecticut, and we got lost. We had to make our way through difficult terrain and shrubs, and we came down the side of a cliff. It was The sun was setting. It had taken us a bunch of hours, and unbeknownst to us, we had ended up on someone's property. We didn't know that, but we clearly realized that both two foreigners on someone's property when we suddenly heard behind us the cocking of a shotgun. We had no idea we were trespassing. There was no sign. We had gone off the trail and ended up in someone's property. If you and I enter a field or walk onto a property or jump a fence when there's a sign that says, when there is a sign that says no trespassing, our sin becomes visible and more serious. We are sinning with our eyes wide open, seeing the sign in front of us. This is known as trespass or, or transgression. This is what Paul meant by where there is no law, there is no transgression. Sin still existed without the sign. We cannot escape the general revelation of God, nor the particular revelation of the law, by any of our own schemes, devices, or works. That's what Paul says two chapters earlier in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We are without excuse. We are helpless vis-a-vis -vis sin. Now that the law has been given, 
we are inexcusably more accountable to God. Some may claim that there are two ways to be saved, through faith in Jesus or through obedience to the law. This is utterly nonsense. There's only one way. Grace is always first. If we adhere to the law for salvation, as verse 14 says, we would not be within the system of grace and faith. We would be within a system of debts and dues. We can never repay God for what we have done. We would always owe him. And he would deal with us according to that. Romans 3.20 proclaims that by works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight. Verse 5 earlier in this passage says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Mere observation of the law is never sufficient for justification. It is by faith that we receive the promise of God, we believe in him, and we joyfully accept the law now given to us to obey in the joyful attitude of thanksgiving to him and to render to him the glory that is due to his name and, and to please him. The promise of God is the beginning of the manifestation of his grace to us. He did not owe it to us. He begins his work of salvation by guaranteeing a promise, by taking away sin, not counting against us, by counting to us righteousness that is not ours, by giving faith, by preserving the believer, by guiding and obeying his commands, and by leading to eternal glory through sanctification. It is the same process for all those who share in the faith of Abraham and the righteousness that is counted to him and the promise he has received by faith. This is what the it in verse 16, Paul says that is why it depends on faith, that it is the promised inheritance and the righteousness of faith, which Paul had mentioned earlier in verse 13, which are wonderful elements that all believers in all of history will share together as children of Abraham, who's, who was the father of us all. Let us look a bit more, as Paul does, in a bit more detail on the story of Abraham and his perseverance in faith from verses 17 to 22. The story of Abraham and his faith and perseverance is truly a marvelous one. He was minding his own business, one might say his own sin, serving other gods, until he turned about 75. Then God appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12 and gave him the promise of a blessing and the fatherhood of many nations. He then told him, get up and go to where I tell you. What did Abraham do? He got up, left his family and his land and went. And Lot went with him for a while. He believed God, believed the promise, and obeyed. In Genesis 15, there's this wonderful experience that Abraham goes through where God assures him of his promise. He basically tells Abraham, take these animals and cut them in half 
and lay them out. And then some birds try to come down and, and eat those animals, and Abraham chases them, and then Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and he sees a burning pot and a small fire walking through these things, and God renews his covenant with him in the dream. And basically, God is telling Abraham, if I'm going to renege my promise, I'm going to be like those animals that you cut there. That is how God's faith, how God's promise is assured to us. It is as sure as he would be torn in half if he would take away his promise from us. So Abraham waited and believed. From a human standpoint, there was not much hope. He was 75. He turned 76, 77, 78. In his 80s, he had some hesitations, and he hurt Sarah, and he had a child with Hagar, the servant, but that was not the child of the promise, and God told him that. There was not much hope. That hope may have seemed even more impossible as they waited a full 25 years, quarter of a century. He was almost 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 now. Maybe when she was 65, there was still a chance. But 90? Paul uses the word barrenness of Sarah's womb, or deadness of Sarah's womb. Just in case you thought maybe she could get pregnant at 65. She did not. She got pregnant at 90. She had left when she was visited by the three men. For who has ever given birth at 90? But faith believes that God is able to overcome the visible facts. For God creates out of nothing and gives life to the dead. There is assurance and security in God's word and his promise. And Abraham believed that, and he welcomed Isaac when he was 100 years old. When he was 99, the three men came to him, and the Lord basically told him, next year, this time, you will have a child. And he did. The promise was being fulfilled. Now, how does Jesus tell the Jews in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day? He saw it and was glad. And how much more of the promise to be heir of the world and father to many nations did Abraham see in the faith? Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, says that he lived as in a foreign land. And intense. And we know from his history, he traveled to Egypt and then stayed with Abimelech and went all around living in tents. But he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He did not see his offspring like the sand of the shore as he was promised, or like the stars in the night sky. In fact, Hebrews 11.13 says that Abraham and others died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They desired a better country. And that's why by faith, Abraham obeyed, even when tested, to go and offer the son of the promise, Isaac, even believing that God could raise the dead back to life. You see, faith desires and believes what the Word of God has to offer, not 
what this world offers. Faith seeks and desires God over the world. What did Abraham see? A little bit. What did he believe? The promises of God, which means everything. And with time, his faith grew stronger. He looked forward to the eternal city. He looked forward to the resurrection. He looked forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Even when he did not know of the Messiah, as the Jews later knew, or as we can look back in history and see, faith was counted to him as righteousness. For he believed the promises of God, which also contained salvation and blessing to all the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham, the one Paul identifies in Galatians 3.16 as Jesus Christ himself. Through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believed that. This is why Abraham is the father of all who believe. And this is how we all share in one and the same faith. That's why the counting of faith as righteousness was not written for his sake alone as we see in the last three verses, but for the sake of all who walk by faith, which also includes us and all believers who will come after us. There is one faith. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one salvation. All those who believed in the Old Testament knew that their sins must be atoned for. And all those who believe today have their sins atoned for, both in Christ alone. Those who died by faith in the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. It's as if they had a predated or postdated check, knowing that that check will be banked the day Jesus Christ dies on the cross and his blood is spilled on their behalf. All those who believed God believed the promise that one day there will be a perfect sacrifice. And all those who believe today believe that Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice. The promise to all who believe is to inherit the word, to inherit the world. And we are assured at the end of Hebrews 11 that we will all receive the inheritance together, that those who died before us and we will all get the inheritance at the same time, the one and same inheritance. So by faith, Abraham believed the promise. He saw some of it, but did not live long enough to see all of it in the flesh. By faith, Abraham also believed the day of Jesus, but did not live to see it in the flesh. He walked by faith, not by sight. We can look back and see more of the fulfillment of the promise in the coming of Jesus. Yet we continue today to live by faith until the day when our hope becomes our reality and our faith becomes our sight. As we see all nations of the earth blessed, as we receive our inheritance, as we enter the city whose maker and architect and builder is God. That's why Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Love is going to continue for eternity. But faith is going to become our sight, and our hope is going to become a reality. There's not going to be any more need for faith and hope in the new Jerusalem, but love will continue. Abraham 
we believers today and all believers throughout history, past, present, and future, believe in the only true God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He was delivered as a lamb for slaughter to propitiate, to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. Those who still work with God in a debts and dues economy will receive God's wrath. But in the act of sacrifice, the legal grounds for our justification, for all to be justified and for God's wrath to be satisfied has been set. We can look to Christ and know that our sins are forgiven. We can look to Christ and know that our high priest did not remain dead. No, he did not. He is risen. He is the seal of our inheritance, the firstborn from the dead, the confirmation of our justification. Christ is risen, and we will rise again with him. Sin cannot influence him. Death has no dominion over him. He made a spectacle of him. And we share in the same power of his resurrection as we unite with him. We have not yet come to the eternal city. We have not yet been taken from the sinful world. We have not yet ceased to suffer or see our brothers and sisters being kidnapped, to be sojourners, to live in tents, to endure much hardship, suffering, displacement, persecution, But by faith, we look forward with hope, with confidence, with full assurance that he who raised Jesus from the dead has promised us that he will raise us again with him. And he is faithful to his promise to keep us until that day when we enter the celestial city. And he will graciously with him give us all things. We will inherit the earth. This is the one faith that unites all believers. This is a long chapter. And the summary of the chapter is that God acts toward his elect graciously, without any compulsion or obligation. He justifies the ungodly, the wicked. He gives great and eternal promises Justification, inheritance, the nations, joy, eternal glory, and most of all, his son, Jesus Christ. He does not count sin against his people, but counts to them righteousness, entirely by grace, without any works, and even gives the faith to receive the righteousness and the promise. It is the same faith that makes all believers from all generations share in the same union with Christ, which excludes boasting and discrimination. Faith in God means renouncing any works-based salvation, but it does not mean laziness. Paul would be the last person to promote laziness. In the system of grace that we live in, by the power of God, we look forward to the promise of our inheritance by faith, But we love 
and obey and endure and worship and pray and give and proclaim and hope and do all things for the glory of God by the power that he gives and because he first loved us. We live in peace with him and with one another, our hearts resting in the tangible signs and seals of the righteousness he has given us. And God gives us signs and seals of his new covenant. They are not passes or visas to enter heaven, but they are necessary to confirm our justification. If we claim to be believers but have not been baptized and are not members of a local church of a body of Christ and are not, and are, we are not partaking in the means of grace that God has lavished on us through corporate worship and communion, then there's a huge question mark of uncertainty regarding the seal of the righteousness by faith. As we said earlier in the message, circumcision was to Abraham a gift, just like his faith was a sign of the covenant and a seal of the righteousness in which he stood. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. The means of grace to us as the body of Christ are gifts. They are seals of the righteousness that we receive by faith. So when we gather together, we should rejoice in these gifts together in one assembly, united together with Christ, not only forsaking boasting and discrimination and forsaking sin, but also promoting humility and unity together, walking in oneness of faith, reminding one another of the promises of God, fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he has promised. For he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also raise us again with him. And Christ was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. That is the assurance of faith we have that we who are in Christ will be in his hand and no one can snatch us out from his head. Let us pray.